We're still looking forward uh, in anticipation from the prophets uh, to the coming of the Messiah. And we're taking the theme of shepherd. Uh, We looked at the shepherd uh, passage in Ezekiel, and now we're looking at this very massive, rich passage from Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, So we're going to be looking at Isaiah 40, uh, verses 1 to 11, and we'll also read a little portion uh, from John 1 as well, as we think about the preparation for the coming of the Good Shepherd. Uh, so with that, we're going to be reading uh, Isaiah 40, 1 to 11, and John 1, 19 to 23. If you want to uh, turn there in your Bibles with me, you can, or if you can follow along in your bulletins as well. Let's uh, turn and read God's Word. Let's look at God's Word together. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 19 to 23. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and they did not deny, but, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. The word of the Lord. Let's go ahead and pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word stands forever. That it never fails. It never fades. We thank you for the eternal word, the Lord Jesus Christ who came to this earth, and we pray that in this season we might be encouraged and reminded of his great love and faithfulness to us as our shepherd. Help us to see that in the text this morning. Help me as your 
servant bear witness and share the good news. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes you just need to be comforted. There's a lot of reasons you might need to feel comforted. You might, as a little kid, sometimes you know what it's like. You get injured, you fall, you skin your knee, you hurt your arm, whatever it may be, and you need your mom and dad to come along and comfort you. That's pretty normal. We all need comfort. Sometimes you just need a word from a friend that says, it's going to be okay, from a loved one who says, it's, it's going to be okay. I find it especially true when I personally have made a mess of things. When the effects and the consequences of my own sin are felt, and not just by me, but by those around me, by the ones I love, it's in those moments when I know that I've messed up, that I know that, I know that I've made a mess around me and that it's my fault that I desperately long to be comforted, to be reminded that I'm forgiven. Maybe it's the same for you. After chapter 39 of the prophet in in the book of Isaiah, uh, you come to this word of comfort in Isaiah chapter 40. And it comes after a very long 39 chapters of essentially judgment, of God's heavy hand of judgment that's coming upon his people because of their sin. Isaiah has preached about the coming of Assyria. Assyria comes and takes away the northern kingdom. And at the very end here in chapter 30 uh, and 39, just before chapter 40, a word comes to this great king, Hezekiah, who gets a little bit full of himself. And the prophet says to Hezekiah, oh, and Babylon is coming too. And he's going to lay waste to Jerusalem. And he's going to take your progeny and your people and take them away to Babylon. Just remember, just like Ezekiel did last time. And the, and the, the prophet Ezekiel comes after Isaiah. Isaiah's before uh, the prophet Ezekiel by about 100 years or so. Um, but there's, God is saying the same thing. On account of your sin, there's judgment. But then in chapter 40, there is this massive word of hope and comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. The people of God needed to hear this. And over the course of the next 27 chapters of Isaiah, so sort of almost in the middle of the book of of Isaiah, is a shift. It's a shift away from the Lord's heavy hand of discipline coming upon the people of Israel to this glorious word of comfort for 27 chapters. And these first two verses in Isaiah chapter 40 set the sort of trajectory, if you will. They are the sort of bedrock of everything that's going to follow for the next 27 chapters. It's going to unfold these two little verses. What do these two little verses say? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It's the 
It's God telling the prophet to do the prophets. It's in plural to do this work of speaking com- comfort to the God's people. He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her first warfare is ended. They're no longer going to be battle worn, injured people who are constantly under attack. Their warfare will be ended. Second, it says, your iniquity is pardoned. All that stuff that you did wrong for which you have now been cast into exile, all of it, everything that you have done to rebel against me, all the sins that you have committed are forgiven. And then finally, this glorious note says that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, you might read that and say, double what? Double punishment? Well, no, the context is quite clear. Not double punishment. You've received double blessing, double goodness from the hand of God. In the face of you being a stiff-necked, sinful people, find comfort. The rest of the book of Isaiah is all about that. But here in this section, these first 11 verses, we get a glimpse into where Isaiah is going. And he wants to talk about the comfort that's coming in the person of the Messiah. At the very heart of these three great promises of comfort is that coming of the good shepherd. This good shepherd comes to end the warfare, to to pardon our iniquity and to bless us. Double blessing on top of blessing, even in the face of our sin. And this is the way Isaiah begins. He says, you want to know what this comfort looks like? He says, behold your God. Behold your God. That's, that's the comfort. God is coming and he's coming to you in the person of Jesus Christ and he's coming to give you comfort and forgiveness. Behold your God. And this is what I want us to consider this morning. I want us to behold our God that comes, this mighty shepherd who comes to bring us comfort. We'll look at this in three parts. First, I want us to look at the, there, there's three parts and three sections with three verses each. So uh, f- verses one and two that we've just sort of unfolded are, you might call the prologue to the rest of the book. But here in verses, we're going to look at verses three to five, six to eight, and nine to 11. Those three sections we're going to break up. The first section, three to five, is going to be looking at the glory of the Lord that's revealed, the preparation of the shepherd king. So it's the the coming king that we are preparing for, the revelation of his coming. So we're going to look at that. Secondly, we're going to look at uh, the enduring word, the good news of the shepherd king that goes out, that stands forever. And then finally, and most significantly, I want us to behold your God, the coming of the mighty shepherd. And that's where we're going to end. But let's begin just looking at the glory of the Lord revealed, the preparation for the shepherd king. In this section, in verse 3, it says, A voice cries. 
This voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Just a couple notes about this. Of course, John the Baptist, we read, picks this language up concerning himself. And we'll look at that. But I just want us to note that it says a voice. Whose voice? What voice? Well, John the Baptist thinks it's his voice. But it's interesting that the prophet uses this language, a voice cries in the wilderness. It's an unidentified voice. In this section of John, where it says uh, that people came to him asking him, who are you? What are you about? Who, what, what's, what, what is your thing? What's your name? How do you identify yourself? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? All that John says is, I'm a voice of one calling out in the wilderness. It's interesting. Why the anonymity? Well, I think we get a little understanding of why the anonymity. Uh, John the Baptist was the preparer of the one who was to come. He was the one to point forward. Later in the Gospel of John in chapter 3, he will say, I must decrease so that he must, so that he will increase. Or it goes the other way around. Uh, He must increase, increase, but I must decrease. Over and over again in the gospel, at the beginning of this section of John, he says, I am not the Christ. And he's pointing a finger to the Christ. His role is to be, to be fading into the background. Why? Because he's the herald of the one to come. He is insignificant. And yet, Jesus will call him the greatest of all the prophets. Well, his voice cries out nonetheless, and it rings out with clarity. It says here, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's kind of interesting. What, why a highway in the desert? What's this all about? This is a strange sort of prophetic language that we sometimes struggle to grasp these sorts of things. We'll remember that John the Baptist himself lived in the desert. He ate locusts and honey. He wore, uh, you know, clothing from animals' hair. He was somebody who was a little bit wild. And he was out in the desert. He was down by the Jordan. He was baptized and he was calling people to repent. And he was there in the wilderness. Preparing the way of the Lord. But what is this about making a highway? You'll maybe remember from your U.S. history classes that uh, President Eisenhower, and it really started even before Eisenhower, the thought of it anyway, was to create a system of highways across intersecting the United States. It's a massive public works project which he created all these beautiful expressways that now we can fly down at 75 miles an hour or more. I mean, no, less. I mean, never mind. But he made them with a very particular ultimate purpose in mind, was that they could move our troops across this country if the need ever came to be, that we had to move large amounts of our military forces around the country. In the ancient world, they would build roads, big roads anyway, with the express purpose of moving the king and his army across the the country. 
It was about bringing that, that king to the place where he needed to be. And so here in our text, it's talking about building this highway in the desert. So what about this desert? We can kind of understand, here's the coming God, the coming king, and we got to create a highway for him so that the heavenly host can come. It's kind of the picture that's being painted. So what about in the desert? Well, I think this figurative language points to the need of God's people It's on account of their own sin and rebellion that they find themselves in that sense in a deserted place. They're in Babylon or they're in exile. They don't have the presence of their God. They are in the wilderness. And so John, that great prophet, says, prepare the way of the Lord. And what does it look like to prepare the way of the Lord? Well, it's to raise up the highways and to lower the mountains and to flatten out and to make things not so crooked and to get rid of the rough places and, and clean it all up so that there's a way. Now, we might think, we might be tempted to think in our own lives, in our own experience, that that means well, if I want Jesus to come into my life, or however you want to put it, I got to get my act together. I have to get cleaned up. I have to get ready and make that road smooth in my life before God will come, right? I'd like to note here a couple things. First, it says every valley shall be lifted up. And the rough places, the uneven ground shall become level. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. This is a sure thing. God is coming. And what is our way of preparing ourselves? What does it mean for us to prepare ourselves? Well, John actually points us to this. It isn't about cleaning ourselves up and making ourselves righteous in any sense, but it's about acknowledging our desperate State and need. We are in the wilderness apart from the grace of God. We need desperately the presence of God with us. So John calls the people to repent. The ministry of repentance saying, come, repent, prepare your way, prepare yourselves for the coming of the king, the coming of the Messiah. But the good news is that God comes. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain shall be laid, made level. God will come to his people. Remember at the very beginning, we read those first two verses. It said, comfort, comfort my people. Comfort my people. At the beginning of the book of Isaiah, if you go back, a lot of the language is you people, those people. But here God is reminding them, you are my people. You're mine. And I'm coming to you. That's a guarantee. Prepare yourselves. Friends, God does not despise the brokenhearted. 
God comes to the deserted places to restore and rescue his sheep. What good news there is in that. It's an astounding truth that God comes and reveals to us his glory. A desert wasteland people full of iniquity and sin. And yet he reveals to us his glory. The text says the glory of the Lord will be revealed and that all flesh shall see it together. We look at the, the story of the life of Israel. Where did the glory presence dwell with God's people? Well, in the temple, right? That's where the glory presence dwelt, in the temple. Above the temple, in the temple, filling it up. Well, now they're... In the future, he's speaking to them in the future. They'll be in exile. The, the city of Jerusalem will be laid waste. There will be no temple. There will be no presence. God will not be with them for a time. The glory had departed from Jerusalem, so to speak. But he's coming back. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And what does his glory mean? What does his presence mean? Salvation. Salvation. And it says, all flesh shall see it together. This is an all-encompassing word. All flesh, all humanity, all the people shall see it together. And John, in, earlier in his gospel, in, earlier in chapter 1, he says it this way. He says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, yet his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. A little further down in John 1, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what? And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is revealed to all flesh, though all flesh does not receive him. Friends, there's a call here in this section. There's a call by the prophet Isaiah, and I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss Jesus. The call is to prepare yourself in this sense. Yes, he already came, right? Nevertheless, there is a call here to repent to recognize our desperate need of him, that apart from him, we have no hope. We are like those living in the desert. Repent and believe in the one who has already come, who saves us, and who is coming again. There's a shift now in our text. It's the preparation piece, but here there's a shift to this look at the enduring word, these next three verses. And it's the good news of this coming shepherd king. It's an interesting little section because it's a comparative section. It's saying, here is what man is like, humans are like. And here is what God's word is like. And they're very different. They're, they're contrasted here in this little section. It says, all flesh, all humanity is like grass. And it's like the flower of the field. What's he saying? Well, 
after this year of trying to plant grass in our yard during a drought, I can tell you grass quickly springs up and then quickly fades away without plenty of water, plenty of sunshine. Uh, it just dies. And so now we are back to all this lovely rain, which is now turning my yard back into a mud pit. The text says we are like grass. Not only are we like grass, or we're also like the flower of the field. And this is a really interesting word that we can look at here. It says, all flesh is grass and all its beauty, that's what the ESV says, is like the flower of the field. The word there for beauty is the word Hasid. Hasid is, of course, a very rich word in the Old Testament. It refers oftentimes to that steadfast love and faithfulness of God. It's that covenant love, if you will, that's often described. But here it seems to be describing this flower that fades, the Hasid flower. This is kind of an interesting what, do, what, what does the writer here mean? Because clearly it's talking about the fading beauty, the fading loveliness of this flower. And we see in the, in the various translations, they try to figure this out. The ESV says beauty. The King James says goodliness. I like that word, goodliness. Uh, the NASB says loveliness, the loveliness of the flower. And the NIV says faithfulness. They're trying to pull in that sort of covenantal language, but if it's Hesed, maybe it's faithfulness. It's probably some combination of all of those, but Peter, I think, expresses it best in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24. There, quoting the Septuagint, the same verse, he says it this way. He says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. Glory. Now, that's a, that's a direct take from the Septuagint. Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. So, so the Greek translation calls it glory, doxa in the Greek. It's the same word we get from doxology, right? Which is interesting because Hebrew has a word for glory, kavod. It doesn't need. So what is this word and how is it referring to this grass or this flower? I, I think the best way to understand it is to say our glory, our loveliness, our faithfulness, our goodliness, our beauty is fading. It's passing. It's here a minute, gone. The best that man has is a fleeting glory that doesn't mean much. It's like, it's like hay that gets blown off into the wind. It's because we're frail humans. But more than just frail humans, we are sinners. 
The text says that the, the breath of God comes. The breath of the Lord blows on it. Usually we think of the breath of the Lord as a good thing. The breath of the Lord is, is, the, is the Spirit's breath that breathes life. But here, it's not that kind of breath. It's the kind of hot breath of death, the kind of, of sweeping hot wind that comes over a field and drives all the life and moisture out of that field. It's like a drought breath of the Lord comes. And it takes life. It's what happened with Israel. That was the situation. They had flourished for a time and then they were gone. They were pushed off into exile, laid waste. And that's the situation of all humanity. All of us are like that grass that quickly fades. But one thing that doesn't fade, that never fades, the word of the Lord. So what it says, the word of the Lord stands forever. The word of our God will stand forever. All of God's words are yes and amen. It never fails, but always endures But here's the thing about the context. Yes, that's a truth that Peter picks up, that the word of the Lord endures forever. It never fades away. But here's the thing. When he's talking about the word, he's not just talking in general about all the words of Scripture, but he's talking about the word of hope and good news that never fails, never fades, never goes away. That's what it's talking about, this good news That is yes and amen. That is the revelation of the glory of God, that there will be salvation. From that great promise of the enduring word comes the final proclamation of our text. The revelation, the actual physical manifestation of the glory of God. Behold our God, behold your God, the coming of the mighty shepherd. In this last section, we have these words, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. We didn't sing it today, but there's a great uh, carol that I personally love, go tell it on the mountain. Go tell it on the mountain. So who is the herald here? Because up to this point, it's been the prophets or Isaiah who's been the one who's been speaking, the one who goes out and says, or John the Baptist, who says, behold, uh, a voice cries in the wilderness. But here, it says, go up to a high mountain, O Zion. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Who's the herald? Now it's Zion and Jerusalem. What is Zion and Jerusalem? Well, those are just words for the people of God. Those are words for the church, if you will. Those are words for those who have received the the, the coming of the king, the ones who have now beheld God. He's saying, now go up to the mountain and declare this good news to the world, to the rest of Judea, to all the other cities in the area. Make it known, cry out for all flesh to hear. I think it's an important movement in our text. The prophets come to the people. 
And then the people, behold, the coming of the king and the shepherd king coming with might and power, which we'll look at in just a minute. And then what does that people do? They go and share the good news. They go out to the, to the mountaintops and they, they cry out across the, the hills and let it ring that the Lord has come. What does that mean for you and me? One commentator said it this way, and I think it's an important word. He says, the church is not to keep this message to herself, but to present it to Judah's cities with a holy boldness, right? Uh, Judah's cities, meaning just all the cities, all the places where you live. She is not to pose as a seeker after truth, unsure of her message, but to declare it in clear, firm, and positive voice that her message is true. He went on to say, hesitation, timorousness, and trembling are out of it, are out of place. There is no need to fear as though the word of God would not be fulfilled or as though the message would prove to be untrue and an embarrassment would result. No, go and tell the good news that Jesus Christ is born as the, the hymn goes. What are we to tell? What were the people of Jerusalem to go and declare to all the lands? What is the good news? It could be summarized this way. The whole of Scripture could be summarized this way. Behold your God. Behold your God. That's, that's what the text says. Here it says, go up on a high mountain, etc. And then it says, cry to the cities of Jeru- Judah. And what are they to cry? Behold your God. This is the summary of the good news. And what is it? God comes to his people. God comes to earth to save. One commentator put it this way. He said, if we have not God, we have nothing. And if we have him, we have all things. If we don't have God, if God does not come, if he's not with us, we have nothing. But when he comes, if he comes to us, we have all things. Behold, your God. And how does he come? How does he come? Well, the text says he comes in two ways. It says he comes with might. Did you see that in the text? He comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Um, that is how God comes. He comes in strength. He comes in power. He comes to rule. He comes to subdue. He comes... To judge, he's a God who is powerful and mighty and none can stand before him. He comes in might. And the very next line, which is a little bit tricky, says, but it's, I think it's one of the more astounding aspects of this whole text, which is full of astounding things. He says this, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. What does that mean? His reward is with him, his recompense before him. I think we think of recompense very negatively, uh, right? Recompense is compensation for a wrong done, right? You get recompense when you receive a reward or you receive that thing for the wrong thing that you've done. When God comes, there's no question that he comes in judgment on his enemies. In that sense, there is payment for sin and rebellion against 
our God. But I actually don't think that's what the text is saying. I don't think that's what it's getting at when it talks about his reward or his recompense. After all, the entire section is about what? How did it begin? Comfort. Comfort, ye my people. Their warfare has ended. They have been pardoned for their iniquity. So what is this recompense and reward that is talked about here? It's you. It's me. His recompense, his reward is his flock. We are his treasured possession. That's astounding news. Astounding news. Remember back, comfort, comfort my people. I'm coming for you. My right arm is coming, my strong arm. And then he, he shifts his analogy. He's no longer the mighty God, but now he is the shepherd. You see this in the very end here? He says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. And what does he do with that mighty arm? He gathers his lambs up and he holds them. And he carries them close to his bosom. That mighty right arm comes and saves. And there is nothing that can separate us from him. When he comes, there's nothing that can separate us from his love and care and protection and forgiveness. He holds us secure. We are his reward. How incomprehensible is that? You, me, grass that fades away, flowers that fade away, sheep that wander off, stiff-necked people that sin. We are his reward. How are such things possible? How is that even feasible? How is this great God whose word endures forever, who justly judges sin, how is he able to call us his reward? John the Baptist was the voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He was calling the people to repentance, to in their very clear and utter weakness and inability as sheep to turn to the shepherd. And when the shepherd arrives at the river Jordan in the wilderness of Judea, there before John, John sees him. And what does he said? Behold your God. He didn't say behold your God. He didn't say behold the shepherd of Israel. He doesn't say behold the shepherd of Israel. He says, behold the lamb of God who takes Away your sins. Friends, our God comes in might as the great shepherd of the sheep. But he comes as a sheep too. He comes like us in every way with one big difference without any spot or blemish, without any sin. And he comes 
as a good shepherd to lay his life down for the sheep. And he does this by offering himself up in our stead. And the iniquity of us all is laid upon him. This is how God comes as the mighty shepherd to gather us in his arms because he came in humility to die that our warfare might be ended, that our iniquity be pardoned, and that we would receive double blessing. Friends, go tell it on the mountain. Shout it. Sing it. Behold our God. Let's pray.